0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of The Sachin and Adam Show. Um, it's been, I think, a week and a half since we last released an episode. Um, you know, just trying to take some time off after UD, chilling a little bit. We actually just passed um, 11,000 total listens, which is cool. I know this, it's a pretty small number, but me and Adam are excited about that. We're happy. <laughs> yeah, it, it's good for us. Um, and today we have a super exciting episode. So we um, have Brendan Ma here, who Adam will introduce in a sec. But we've been trying to um, get in contact with Brendan and organise this for a while because I think when I was in first year uni, I remember seeing Brendan, um, I think it was to do with, maybe you're going for Poll or something like that. I remember looking on your Facebook and I was like, oh my God, this guy has like 800 likes on his DP, he must be a popular dude. And ever since then, I've been like, let's interview this guy and get to know him a little bit. So... Yeah. Would you want to introduce
1: him? Yeah. So um, this is the first time meeting Brendan, but he's done a lot of different things. So he's been on the board. Um, he's a director at UN Youth, which is obviously the youth delegate to the UN. He's been a negotiator for the G20 Youth, which is another really big position. Um, along with that, he's worked at Goldman Sachs and is an incoming investment banking analyst at Goldman Sachs. He's done a lot of stuff um, in the law regarding internships. He's been a tutor. He's done stuff in student politics. I think he's done a bit of everything yeah he's done it all
0: you are now listening to the Sachin and adam show um why don't we start off with what you've been doing recently so me and adam have been um kind of reading a few of your articles on linkedin i think related to your law honors um how's that whole academic process been and what kind of stuff have you found
2: yeah thanks both of you as well for having me on um it's really great to sort of share those insights and it's really great to hear that uh, even in first year that we came in contact even though it was indirectly Um, but more recently um, I finished up my law honours at the University of Sydney and so whilst doing that honours programme my research focused on the approach of China when it comes to sovereign debt restructuring in developing nations and um, it's a really interesting type of project because uh, sovereign debt restructuring is I would say one of the most important types of restructuring when it comes to what happens in debt around the world, what happens in a country can't pay back its debt, what happens to the people in that country. And the way that China approaches that, um, as they're now the world's largest official creditor in the entire world, that is pretty opaque and that hasn't really been explored on such a wide scale before.
1: So for our audience that isn't really versed in finance terminology, do you want to just break down a little bit what this sovereign debt restructuring means and why it's important?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So if I think of it from a really basic level as individuals, you and I, we might take on debt for all sorts of purposes. We might take on a debt to fund a business. We might take on debt to buy a car or a house, right? But inevitably, when you have that debt, it's like a contract, right? So you have to pay back that debt every month. What happens when you don't pay back that debt? Now, normally from an individual or even from a company perspective, if you can't pay back that debt, you become bankrupt, right? You become insolvent. And there are laws within a country like Australia to kind of return as much money to the people that loaned you that money in the first place, but at the same time to protect you, right? They're not going to go after your entire family. They're not going to make you pay back money that you really don't have if you're bankrupt. So there are laws in place that shield you during that process. Now, the problem is when you take that from a big country perspective, countries borrow debt all the time and they borrow from other countries. They might borrow from international institutions. Um, like the IMF, for instance, but when countries don't pay back their debt, there isn't an international framework that is the same as domestic bankruptcy laws. Okay? There's no law that comes in and says, OK, maybe Fiji, for instance, can't pay back its debt to China. So instead of China going in and seizing all of these different ports or different assets in the country, there's no law that protects that necessarily. Right? And there's all these other complications as well, because countries are sovereign. Right. You can't necessarily bring Fiji into a Chinese or an Australian court and say Fiji has to comply with Australian or Chinese laws. And so that's where that becomes really tricky. And obviously, if a country defaults on its debt, that has big problems for the money they have left to pay for their health systems, pay for budgetary measures, um, pay for housing for their population. And so that's why I really wanted to focus in on some of those impacts to the human rights and development in those countries. Mm.
0: Did you think much about, um, given everything that's happened now, if China is the main creditor, does that give them a lot of leverage kind of going forward when all this debt needs to be repaid?
2: Yeah, um, that's a really good point. Um, and because China, is, they're not only the, the, official, the largest official creditor, but actually there are, there are studies that show that the amount of debt that countries around the world owe China alone is more than all the OECD governments more than the IMF, more than the World Bank combined, right? So it's a huge amount of money. Um, and the other dynamic that comes in from the geopolitical angle is a lot of Chinese lending is focused in regions like, um, sub-Saharan Africa, in the emerging Asian continent, uh, Asian countries as well. And so those countries, they have difficulty necessarily getting finance from other means or other countries because it's quite risky in some of those countries. There's a lot of conflict, sometimes there's wars. Um, It's harder for maybe the private sector to lend money to those areas without charging a super high rate. And so then you're left with a scenario where, in some countries, about 30 to 40% of the country's entire debt is owed to China. And so yeah, a huge problem when it comes to, you know, bargaining position, ability to negotiate. Um, And
0: another, yeah, uh, go. Ask if China lends money to those countries from your perspective for philanthropic reasons or for <laughs> I don't think there's any philanthropy involved
2: in it. I mean, it's, it's a nice way of thinking of it. Um, but, you know, when it comes to billions and billions of dollars, obviously, there's financial and political reasons behind it. And, and it's not just limited to China, right? Every country necessarily has some of those things. But one thing that a lot of people probably should understand about Chinese lending is that... Um, unlike official creditors like, let's say, the World Bank or even some OECD governments, um, like the US, for instance, a lot of the aid or the lending that China provides isn't what we call concessional. So, concessional is lending that is at a really low discount. So, it's quite cheap. And you sort of imagine that type of concessional lending to go towards humanitarian projects or nation building projects, right? So, it's not really philanthropy. But at least you're not charging extremely high interest rates on it. So the majority of Chinese lending isn't really geared towards that. In in Africa alone, for instance, uh, some some experts estimate about 80% of Chinese lending within the continent is not concessional. So it's on much more market terms. So it, it becomes harder to pay back that loan if you have, let's say, a recession or you have commodity prices that change within a country that affects their exports.
1: So with the coronavirus, obviously a lot of the world's countries have been plunged into recession. People are experiencing these sort of debt challenges. What are the challenges gonna be facing these sort of nations in like Sub-Saharan Africa? And what are the implications for human rights that you've talked about before?
2: Yeah, so COVID is such a span in the works. I remember when I started my research, that was the last thing on my mind, right? This is when it was all emerging. But as I sort of developed my research, the impacts of COVID basically bring forward a lot of the concerns that some of the people in the international community were worried about for a long time already. So what that means is, um, right now there is a genuine risk that you know at least a dozen different emerging countries around the world might default on its debt. Right now the problem is you might have an individual default here and there. Some people listening might be aware of Argentina. Argentina has gone through nine different sovereign defaults um, already in its history. But the problem is when you have a collection of countries that default at the same time, it's going to be really hard and really chaotic trying to negotiate between all these different creditors that include China as well as private sector creditors and just trying to create a solution that works for everyone at the same time. Right. And so COVID is, that factor. It's come in, it means that you have negative growth likely for at least 150 countries the IMF expects now by the end of 2020 and then you're going to get recessions, it's going to reduce the amount of tax that you can get as a government if you're in those countries reduce the amount of exports that you can have and it's going to really risk you not being able to pay back your loans um, or your debt. So what the international community has been doing recently has been trying to push for a temporary freeze or a moratorium on debt repayments for those countries. And so the G20, which is the world's largest 20 economies, they get together regularly every year, but with COVID, they've gone together very regularly. And they agreed uh, a few months ago to temporarily freeze all debt repayments that were owed in 2020 to the official government of the G20 nations. Um, There is, you know, that's not completely foolproof because it's only for 2020. Uh, Private creditors aren't necessarily involved. China is involved, which is a good sign. But one of the issues that is uh, present at the moment is that China still isn't participating in formal negotiation forums such as the Paris Club, which is really important when you want to bring all the creditors to the same table and give the same type of relief and negotiation at the same time. So there's still work to go there, but um, at least there are steps being taken because COVID really brings that risk
1: forward. Mm. I'm wondering what do you think are gonna be the impacts for foreign relations in the future between, obviously we've got these rising tensions between the US and China, uh, a lot to do with trade, and we're Mm looking at a lot more potential worries in the future. And there's been sort of instances of countries, especially in the Pacific changing alliances towards China because of financing that they're receiving from China. So how do you think that's gonna play
2: out? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and we're already seeing it from an Australian perspective. So Australia has a Pacific step-up program, which is you know, trying to boost the amount of resources and diplomacy we have in, in the Pacific region. But one of the um, other, I guess, positive outcomes of that program is that it's, it will try and counter some of the influence that China has within the Pacific region through their financing. All right um, Now, China has a lot of financing within countries such as PNG, and um, countries such as Tonga, but at least you can see that Australia is trying to shift their approach in part to counter that. I think one of the other big issues that's happening right now, though, is because there's just so much debt in the world, right, full stop, before COVID happened, emerging countries had the highest level of both public and private debt that was owed to governments and private sector creditors in the whole of history, right? So that was before COVID. You're going to get to a scenario where countries will still need money to fund things that they need for their population, still need to fund sustainable development, things that improve human rights. Um, But what you're going to see are countries that understand you can't necessarily take on this much debt if you can't pay a back within a crisis. Now, that's probably the worst case scenario if the G20 and other actors within the international community don't find a way out of the risk that you have all of these defaults at the same time. Maybe in a better case scenario, you will still have an ability to not lock out these countries from international capital markets, still be friendly for creditors and countries that want to loan them money. But there is a real risk that, after we come out of COVID, there's going to be a lot of, uh, a much more difficult time for these countries to find finance. And if they can't really find finance, they end up going to the sources that are a lot easier for them. So as as an example, after the GFC, international credit markets became really difficult for a lot of countries to obtain debt from because the interest rates went up, yields on that type of risky sovereign debt went up. And so you saw a lot of countries such as, within Africa go towards China because China said we will still lend you the money and we still see some sort of geopolitical advantage in helping you build that bridge or that uh, infrastructure. So if if, if it gets difficult for countries to access finance in traditional routes, they're going to look for finance elsewhere.
1: Mm, Those are very fascinating dynamics because I think when people Think about these really high-level finance and economic flows that happen on the world stage. It's just an abstract. They like seem and We don't think about the human development yeah. impacts. And here, it's like there's a very real
0: impact from countries not being able to grow that really need to grow. Mm. It's almost a philosophical question. Like, do you place these people in debt traps, or do you like kind of let them go about their own ways? And it's just like yeah, and and yeah. Um, I think I think switching gears a little bit. Um, so on our podcast, we talk a lot about people about their experience in university, and all of us here are coming to the end of our university degree. I know you're graduating next year. What have been like the key learnings of your time in university? And I'd also like to touch on how do you think your kind of motivation slash where you saw yourself change. Because I know, like we all, every kind of few months, we see where we're going to go, change all the time. There's so many interesting things, but there's days when everything seems interesting, and then there's days when you don't know what you're interested in at all, kind of Mm. thing. So how do you how do you navigate that whole process?
2: Yeah, and honestly, I'll I'll be completely upfront. I think everyone at this stage in our lives are still figuring it out to some degree, right? I think I think people that say they have it all figured out, there's probably an element of truth, but a lot of that they're probably still figuring out. Um, I think for me. When I came into university, I had a general idea of what I wanted to do at an abstract level, right? Um, I, because of a number of experiences throughout high school um, and a really great opportunity I had to basically explore and study within the Eurozone at the time when it was all basically collapsing and you had all these sort of financial contagion issues happening as well. I knew that I wanted to be able to have some sort of impact or lead but understand finance and understand international markets because I just saw around myself that there were these high level problems that were happening. But as a young person, you're a little bit removed. It's quite hard to understand. I knew I wanted to be in a position where I understood and could actually contribute in that space. Right. Um, Now, so going into university, I did a combined commerce and law degree at the university of Sydney, um, majored in finance and I did a lot of debating in high school, so the natural inclination was try and you know get a few experiences where you would maybe do a bit of debating, a bit of advocacy, um, and that naturally led itself into some legal opportunities. So I worked at a law firm um, from my second until the end of my third year, um, uh, until the beginning of my third year, and then I also worked at a a commercial law firm um, called Herbert Smith Freehills. Uh, for about two years as well. And those are really great experiences because it really helped me refine my ability to first work in a professional environment, but secondly, understand um, really complex types of issues from the colleagues around me. And so that was a really great opportunity. Um, I think one of the things that happened throughout university, though, is that eventually your interests evolve and one of the things that really played out for me was I developed this greater appreciation and understanding of business, of finance, the things that I was kind of flagging at the beginning before I even entered uni, right? Those were the objectives I wanted to achieve. And I think the more and more that I understood some of the issues and and some of the drivers within financial markets and um, finance in general, um, I started tutoring at the university and the finance faculty. I started looking for opportunities within my, uh, Current work or my existing work at the time to flex um, that learning and then also um, look for other opportunities in other fields so I did an internship at a fund manager which was really interesting because I learned a lot about how you fund global infrastructure um, how you get transactions done and how you corral all these different interests at the negotiating table Um, especially on really interesting sorts of projects like we had one of Australia's Uh, first renewable energy farm that was being funded at the time and that was really interesting to see and then uh, most recently like like you mentioned um, I interned at Goldman Sachs in the financial institutions team and that was a really great opportunity to really combine those interests and work in a high performance environment to understand financial institutions understand what drives them and understand how to really get complex uh, deals done. Mm.
0: So it seems like you've always had this kind of political international relations kind of inclination, but you see the way that you can best contribute that is through this kind of financing economics lens. But I think the question I want to ask you is that everything you've talked about seems very macroeconomic heavy. So why did you initially choose the finance major over the economics major?
2: Mm, that's a really good point. And um, especially on the politics side, I, I forgot to mention, but um, yeah, earlier on in my university life, I did an internship in the US Senate and um, worked in a for a New South Wales politician as well. And those are good opportunities to really see those types of different interests um, and see how you can affect change. Um, on the economics question, yeah, I, I really enjoyed economics in high school. Um, I remember before going into university, I spoke to a few mentors at the time and the advice I really got was try out finance for a little bit because... Maybe one of the benefits of doing finance is that it broadens a bit of your perspective beyond necessarily economics. Um, because in finance, you know, you can if if you're not necessarily interested in the macroeconomic landscape, you might learn about how to run a business, how to um, really engage within financial markets yourself, um, or within a company that's operating within markets. So I think that really gave a lot of optionality um, yeah. to begin with. And I also think, you know, finance and economics go hand in hand, right? Um, economics itself is a really great way of looking at the world from a big picture perspective, um, looking at all the different data points and all the trends that are happening across the world. Um, and then once you're delving deep into how do you actually maybe influence or, or change some of those data points, uh, putting in finance or, or influencing the flow of finance to companies, to individuals, and to populations, um, that becomes a really big, important factor.
1: That's mm, interesting because I think from a lot of people's perspective that aren't in this bubble of finance and economics, they look at investment bankers as being like people are all about money, mm. power, sort of status a little bit. But then when you look deeper, it seems like you, like you genuinely care about affecting financial flows and understanding it. Like, What do you think about the sort of stereotypes that people in the finance industry get? opposed to
2: the reality? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a lot of stereotypes and I mean, it's fair to have those stereotypes. I mean, you watch a movie like Wolf of Wall Street um, and it makes complete sense, right? Um, I think my journey is a little bit interesting because I didn't really come into university expecting to go into a finance background, right? I spent a bit of time working in politics and then in law. So, you know, I kind of went through that journey as well, thinking about those stereotypes, you know, meeting people within the industry and then working within it myself and getting um, my own perspective on it. And I think this has kind of, kind of come to a big, bigger and broader issue about um, how we view financial institutions. And I think it's completely fair, honestly, for our generation to have, you know, quite a negative um, or at the very least a very restrained perception of bankers and financial institutions Because the way I kind of talk to my my own circle and my own friends about this is that we are, in a way, a generation um, that grew up through the GFC, right? We're we're the GFC generation as young people. We saw what happened when uh, banks didn't do well and really didn't um, fulfill the level of trust required in the public space. We also, as Australian young people, have recently gone through the aftermath of a Royal Commission into banking in general. Right. So there's all these factors that understandably lead to a lack of trust um, a negative perception of financial institutions in general. I think one of the big challenges for not just, you know, Australia as a whole, but for young people is figuring out how do we marry those interests and how do we move on from this stage? Because there are a lot of things that, understanding finance will provide you and one of the biggest things that it will provide you is the ability to understand how to stimulate growth in the economy, how to really put different interests together and how to get deals done and that's going to be really important for companies as they come out of COVID. That's also going to be important beyond COVID when we think about where Australia needs to be going forward and you're going to need finance, you're going to need people that trust finance but we need to find a way to really overcome the challenges that have been placed fix the problems that were laid bare and um create solutions really
0: Mm. yeah i think i just want to underline that point in the sense that i think a lot of people as adam was saying have these perceptions of bankers have these perceptions of the whole financial industry i think it'd be cool if you could just speak to in your own words maybe in a simplified like non-technical way what what is the impacts of Financial institutions and people in the financial markets and how do they kind of keep this whole world functioning and how can they actually create change I think that'd be cool to like underline
2: yeah so um, out, so many different ways but maybe a very simple example is um, an investment banker day by day what are they doing they're helping companies get capital in a lot of ways now what's capital capital are just funds or the resources that you need to buy another business to expand your business right to overcome the challenges you're facing today, you know, avoid laying off people, those sorts of things. Right. And so it's really difficult for a lot of companies to get capital. And, you know, it's actually a huge problem. If we think about young entrepreneurs in particular, young entrepreneurs have a huge difficulty in trying to get capital to get the next big tech startup running or to get a health business that they've just started up running. Right. Capital is extremely important. And so, when you're working in a financial institution and you're helping to, you know, price transactions, helping to negotiate on behalf of clients and give clients the best advice really to get capital, that's going to lead to a lot of positive factors for that business's targets and for that business strategy going forward. Um, even beyond that, a lot of the times you have people that have the expertise within finance, that are really able to provide some of the data, provide some of the action necessary when you have big shocks like COVID, for instance, or a recession, right? And so you're seeing right now, um, some of the key people advising the government, even beyond their own day-to-day jobs, are people within the financial services industry because they understand that they can provide advice to government on how their stimulus will affect businesses and the population, whether stimulus is enough, right? And also whether sometimes you shouldn't really provide stimulus at all and you should do some sort of other structural reform. Um, so I think there's two elements. Day to day, financial institutions do a lot. Providing cap- capital is just one out of many operations that they do. And then on a broader level, being able to learn within that environment you know, for a period of time and then do something with that expertise and actually give back by advising government or entering government or, or doing whatever, um, that also has impact too.
1: Mm. I think finance is always going to be something that's immensely impactful because you're literally deciding where financial flow is going to go but then it seems like there's a sort of trade-off with human sort of instincts such as greed mm. um, and sort of control over funds and because it's such a, it's a system where there's so many monetary rewards it becomes sort of we sort of fear away from that purpose and that's why things like the GFC and the Royal Commission happened because mm. people sort of lose sight of what that purpose is of what they're doing.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that especially like in movies like The Big Short talked about a lot at the end about how there was no kind of repercussions to the bankers that um, kind of restructured yeah. these kind of faulty bodies and stuff like that. So I think things like that have also led to um, these kind of perceptions. Um, going back to your kind of banking experience, um, what's it like? Like we, everyone hears about IB being like, mm. you know, you don't sleep. Um, it, it's a massive grind, all that kind of stuff. Can you, like, I know there's probably, you can't dive into specific details, but if you can speak holistically to that experience yeah. and just the day-by-day day experience.
2: Yeah, Um. I mean, you work hard. Um, everyone in the team does. Um, and I think it's one of those things, that, you know, a, a while back, one of my mentors told me that working a year in a place like an investment bank is, a little bit like working two years in any other job. Um, And
1: double the hours. (laughs)
2: um, In a way, in a way. Um, Yeah, I mean, there there are times when you work a lot. Um, I think especially at a junior level when you're really there to try and learn. And at least from my perspective, the attitude of my attitude going in was I knew I didn't know enough. I knew I wanted to be in a position to learn as much as I could because the people around me were so experienced um, and had this expertise. I was happy kind of, working as hard as i could in order to get that knowledge and and be educated myself so you work a lot um, and a lot of that is also client dependent too so um, the type of work that you might do within an investment bank um, might involve working on a live transaction and if you're working on a live transaction there are a whole bunch of different factors and deliverables you need to complete in any given day things change also day to day and um, to give a bit of context as well when i Worked there over the summer, I worked on uh, six different live transactions, um, which is quite a lot um, in hindsight. And so, when you're sort of managing six different transactions and need to be across six different clients um, in any single day, that adds up and you have to make sure that things get done in that particular day, otherwise, it'll flow into the next day. Um, You might also work on uh, sort of marketing or pitch uh, products as well. And that's also a good opportunity to learn a lot more about the services that the bank provides and also the type of industry that you're operating within. Um, And for me, because I am interested in financial institutions, being able to learn a lot about the traditional banking sector as well as some of the emerging um, banks that are coming out, as well as insurers and fintechs, that was a really great opportunity throughout that time too.
1: Mm -hmm. to what extent were you able to manage outside things outside of work and relationships outside of work because in all seriousness it is hard work it is a lot of hours Mm -hmm. did you were you able to find some some sort of balance
2: yeah yeah um I mean like I love going out and exploring new places to eat around Sydney um and I do that you know almost every weekend um one of the other things that's probably memorable is that around that time that was also when I was uh first appointed onto the board of directors of un youth australia which you mentioned before which is uh, one of australia's largest youth-led not-for-profit organizations and they provide education um, services around the country and so you know i was able to balance that when i was at goldman um do you do sorry do you sleep no yeah I, i do sleep um sometimes you sleep late But it's just one of those things where I think especially, and this is probably relevant to anyone in whatever career they're in, um, especially when you're first starting out in a job and you learn the ropes and kind of get your own routine in order, after a while you find time for the things that are important and most importantly, I think you end up prioritizing things that are important too. Within work, you know, in a certain day, what things need to be delivered, like genuinely, and then within your own life as well, what things do you prioritise in your spare time too.
1: Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, So you just mentioned the G20, and you've also been director at UN Youth. Um, Just zooming out a bit, I'd like to hear your uh, perspective on, in this post-coronavirus world, what are sort of gonna be the challenges for the UN and diplomacy um, in the world and foreign relations going forward? Yeah, I
2: mean, huge question. so, especially on a, on a global stage, one of the things that I, I think is COVID has really exposed a lot of things that were already under the surface, right? And so what I mean by that is, for a lot of people, there has been a tendency to necessarily, uh, from a foreign relations point of view, um, view the world in a bit of an isolationist lens, right? And that's not meant to be loaded in any way, But I think when we think about um, even trade, there's a preference for trade that really works for our own country, right? works for the workers and exporters within our own country. Um, There's talk within the US, for instance, about trade surpluses and trade deficits without necessarily thinking about what they actually mean and whether having a trade surplus is really that bad. So there is this view I think that already existed of a lot of people saying, we need to really think about what our country does. We shouldn't necessarily look outwards. We shouldn't be deploying our resources outwards um, as much. And when COVID happened, you had this collective uh, initial period where the world um, as a body, through the World Health Organization, through various different channels, were trying to collaborate. And then slowly, I think a lot of countries realized this is not really working. And so you've seen that the countries that have done extremely well at the initial phase of containing the virus have been those that didn't necessarily wait for um, multilateral advice. There were countries that, that included you know, places like Taiwan that saw that there were virus numbers coming from China and then the day after ended up closing their border with China and starting screening, right? So they did that on their own. Countries that you know, within Australia, we took measures to close borders quite early. We took quite a lot of unilateral measures, um, but we've also still used forums like the G20 to advocate for you know, investigations or our own interests as well. So I think you're going to see a lot more, um, maybe reluctance from countries to necessarily take on a multilateral perspective, especially when there's crisis. And I think that's just the nature of a crisis, right? When there's a crisis, things move so quickly. Countries that don't need to wait for other countries probably will do better. Um, But I think one of the challenges that comes about from that perspective is that sometimes the problems that the world faces are not going to be solved from a unilateral perspective, And I think a lot of young people are aware of that. That might include climate problems. That might include problems about trade and finance. Um, It might include problems about immigration and migration as we come out of COVID. And that does require multilateral um, cooperation. So especially at the G20 level, it's gonna be really important. And one thing I'm watching at the moment is how the G20 reacts to some of the new uh, unemployment and trade numbers coming out of these countries. Because without a combined effort um, later on in say October, um, it's gonna be quite difficult for a lot of even developed countries to have their own resources um, to really improve the situation without a multilateral um, sort of effort.
0: Uh, that's super super interesting
1: yeah it do you think that the world is going towards a more isolationist view because i think it looks like america it is it looks like china's trying to stand strong there's another uh, number of european countries that are going isolationist and america just sort of left the world health organization do you think one on this trend towards con- countries trying to act distinctly within their self-interest and not cooperating
2: yeah, I, th- I think so. And I think there's a few causes for that. Um, I think for a period of time, a lot of the population, not just in Australia have not necessarily felt that there was a prosperous period of time. And when things aren't going well within their own country, you look at what happens overseas and you look at what the country has committed resources towards. So you know, even after GFC, for instance, when the GFC happened and you had financial contagion that spread across the entire world, people looked at the fact that we were so interconnected that was probably a symptom of some of the pain and unemployment that happened within countries that were far removed from the u.s banking system right and then you you know the u.s is an example of a country that has looked a lot more inward recently but even before that you had the united kingdom um, their population thought that being part of a combined european effort was not really working for them right and when you look at the economic data when you look at the sort of sentiment on the ground at in the UK at the time it's understandable for a lot of people to feel that way right so I think you're seeing this trend or this cycle come through throughout the US and then probably also to Australia because for Australia we always get the trends pretty late Um, but you know that's something that we have to grapple with but my hope is that we also realize that there are still certain challenges that need a multilateral focus. There are certain challenges that Australia can't do alone, right? Um, so even if we have an inward perspective, we need to keep those channels alive for the times when we need them.
0: Mm. And I think to what you're saying before, I think there's a lot of kind of fault to be dealt on governments for this this whole process of globalization went very fast, right? And there were people that, get left, that got left behind. And that's why we're seeing this increased amount of guarded globalization, whether it spreads to Australia or not. But I think that just in terms of, I don't think that if something isn't going our way, like quilling up and like, you know, protecting ourselves is gonna be the best long-term solution, especially with something like COVID coming, um, coming around the corner. So it'd be interesting how, um, if there is a united economic response and how it actually takes place, especially with these emerging geopolitical tensions. Like the mix of all of these together could be quite dangerous.
2: Yeah, and for Australia, especially, we're quite vulnerable because we do have, from an economic, from an economic perspective, quite a quite a reliance on countries like China, for instance. Um, when it comes to our exports, you know, there are countries that can now take minerals out of the ground at lower costs than us. Um, mm-hmm. We had quite a lot of education exports until COVID happened. So we are quite vulnerable if we end up saying we don't need the support of other countries that mm. we can do it alone.
0: Yeah, geographically as well, we're quite exposed. Mm. Um, yeah, cool. Why don't we why don't we switch gears again? And I want to talk more about university. Again, you're at the end of your time. What have been some key learnings from you of your experience that you could pass on to other students? And I'm more talking about people that are coming to university, maybe don't know specifically what they want to do, but they know they want to have a big impact on the world. They're quite motivated. What, what kind of would you say to these kind of people?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I, that's awesome um, that people feel that way. And I think one of the things that people should keep in mind throughout university is that once you start university, that doesn't mean you, the rest of your outside uni life, the extracurriculars that you're passionate about in high school need to end right and i think one of the big things that i try and tell people is especially when you're starting off in your university life you get relatively quite a lot of time compared to maybe later on when you are three or four years down the track try and use that time the breaks that you have you know to socialize to be with friends um to travel but if you have an opportunity you want to go for try and use that time productively and effectively as well Because by the time you graduate as well, it really pays to have all these different experiences, whether they're in Australia or outside Australia, that you can kind of learn from and use in whatever venture you're going into.
0: Mm. A follow-up question to that is that, so me and Adam, for context, in the first two years, we were very interested in entrepreneurship. We didn't think about too much about this consulting, banking stuff. And so for that point, we didn't like, try particularly hard at university. We've been almost too much of these other experiences. How, how do you go about managing, kind of keeping all your options open with your WAM and your academics, as well as doing all this other stuff?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I actually think the big thing here is knowing your own self-worth. And so one of the things for me, when I was really busy, okay, I remember my second year, there was a semester where I was extremely busy and I genuinely bit off more than I could chew. Um, I think what you learn from that is when you have exams for instance or when there are things that are important to you i'd recommend at the start of every year maybe write down on the list what are the three or four or five things that you really want in that year right do you want a good grade do you want a great internship opportunity do you want to advance the sort of startup or the society that you started right if those are the things you want to do then make sure that in those critical times whether it's exam period or a really crucial period of time when you're working on your startup that you commit the time then you know that it's okay to say no to other commitments right Mm. and I think that's something I had to learn going through as well I had to learn that for instance if I valued my academics which I did um, during exam periods and even before that I needed to say no and be comfortable saying no to other commitments or other opportunities around that time Mm. Um, I think knowing your self-worth is important in that context but then also as you progress and learn throughout university and beyond it's going to be super important when people look at you as a valuable part of any team because you know how valuable you are yourself
0: yeah and cool and also have you ever felt that your kind of ambition versus your kind of having fun and socializing in uni have you ever felt you've been out of balance with that
2: uh not really I mean like other than the time other than in my second year where I was just extremely busy and almost burnt out um and that was when I was like okay I need I need to dial down on some of those things I said yes to um no not really I've been like really lucky because in my first year for instance I went to the social camps that the faculties would run and I know you know if you're starting out in first year this year um it's been a really tough time um for sure but I made a really close group of friends during those camps, for instance, and, and that friendship group has kind of stuck with me um, throughout my time at university. And, um, you know, you, you make friends in all these different places as well, and um, you kind of have the time to be social um, throughout your time at university as well. But um, yeah, I think I think that actually leads to another good point, which is that there's just so many interesting stories that you can learn from different types of people. And I really commend both of you for running a podcast like this where you can listen to different people's stories because even from a social perspective, if you're meeting a lot of people, uh, throughout the year, you're going to expand your horizon. You're going to learn if you listen to them. So, um, there's nothing wrong with doing that as well.
0: Mm. Awesome. Um, I, so I think coming back to, well, we're going to, we're going to end off in a sec, but I want, I w- really interested to know that if you like, what is your kind of big vision in life? Like what would kind of make you content slash satisfied at the end of your career or when you retire?
2: Um, that's huge question for a 22 year old. Um, honestly, I think, I think one of the things I've learned throughout university is that often when I when when the best outcomes happen for me, um, whether it's in a professional context or whether it's in a academic or, or, social context um those best outcomes often arise when i don't kind of get caught up in that long term and in 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 those what-ifs right and the reason for that is because there are so many things that i get to learn in the things that i'm doing in the moment and the things in the short term and by doing well at them that leads to other opportunities Mm -hmm. and so when i look back in hindsight probably now is a good example When I look back at my time in university so far, I'm content in the sense that I think I've had that balance that you just mentioned. But most importantly, I feel like I've really challenged myself and I've done things that I never thought I would have done. I've done things that I feel have been important and impactful. And I've also put myself in a position to always learn, right? And I think, you know, if I look maybe 30, 40, 50 years into the future, if I'm still at that standard, And if i can still look back on those 50 years and say yes i've made that balance and i'm i've been in a position to learn and impact um i think i'd be pretty happy
1: Mm -hmm. i really like that outlook because i think a lot of people go into universities and they get too carried away by like the long-term view like what is my career going to be what am i going to do but from the sounds of what you did you sort of took yourself and you had a really high standard for yourself always being passionate about what you're doing and always doing a lot and that as we can see during your uni, it's really led you to great places. Mm. And if you
0: keep that standard, well, and I, think, I something, think that's a good way to say it. I think something also interesting from your experience is that you had kind of these broad, like uh, interest before university, as you said before, you didn't know where you wanted to go, but you actually tried out different things. And I think people can get stuck in analysis paralysis. Okay. I want to do this, but I'm not going to get there, blah, blah, blah. But you actually tried a few different avenues that you were interested in and then have come, to a kind of a junction of all these different interests in a place where you think you can have a big impact.
2: Yeah, that's completely right. And a really great article I was reading the other day was talking about why people need to stop psyching themselves out before they try for the things they want to do. And, you know, for me, that's been a journey as well because if you're interested and if you're just not sure about how you're going to get to a certain end goal that you might have in the back of your mind, you need to try things out. And sometimes that might be intimidating. Sometimes you're going to say, oh, I'm not going to get the role that I'm looking for because I'm not qualified or experienced. Mm. But just try. Don't psych yourself out because there's so many other people that will psych themselves out Mm. um, and you'd be surprised at how successful you can be with a bit of passion.
0: Mm. 100%. That's awesome advice and a good way to wrap it up. Yeah, cool. Well, cheers for this, Brendan. We'll have to do a round two sometime because I feel like there's so many other places we could go.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that was episode 27. Um, that was awesome, Brendan. I think we got some great insights into sort of went micro into what you do, um, different internships, and then we talked about the international relations. Yeah. So some fascinating dynamics there.
2: Awesome. Thanks so much yeah. for having me.
1: Thanks, that, mate.